Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Job chapter 42. Uh, we're coming to the last passage in uh, this book of Job. So we're going to finish up with that this morning. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to kind of do a recap of the book of Job and just kind of draw out some of the major points I think we should take with us as we kind of close uh, the book and our study of it. And then after that, uh, my plan is to um, uh, start working through the two Thessalonian epistles, which have a lot to deal with uh, the return of Christ, and they'll uh, give us a good opportunity to study that at a little bit more depth, as well as uh, some of the struggles that the church at Thessalonica was going through as well. So if you're, uh, if you're there in, in Job chapter 42, and we all kind of know the book of Job, so we kind of know where it's, uh, it's heading, and uh, we all love stories with a happy ending, right? Uh, if I watch a movie and it doesn't have a happy ending, I kind of feel like I want my money back. I mean, you kind of expect a happy ending. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest happy ending of anything because it promises glory to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the greatest happy ending story of, of all time. But uh, we love stories with a happy ending, and by the grace of God, the book of Job has a happy ending. So we're very uh, thrilled to be able to finally, after waiting through all the difficulties and the trials and the struggles, we finally come now to Job chapter 2, verse 10. It says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, he had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. And after reading that, you just kind of feel like, <sighs> finally. So when we look at this, uh, this conclusion, let's begin back up in verse 10. And I want to begin by noting when this glorious restoration took place in Job's life. Notice in verse 10, it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. The context of this is that, remember earlier, back up in verse 7 and 8, God had turned to Job's three friends and he said, you have not spoken of me right or correctly like my servant Job has, and my wrath is upon you. My wrath is upon you. So they needed to bring seven burnt offerings. And then God told them, and Job will pray for you. And because I've accepted him, when he prays for you, I will accept you, is the idea. So what we have is that Job must obey God. He must pray for his three friends. Now, what, what's he going to pray for them? Well, again, the context with them being under God's wrath 
because of their sinfulness, he must pray for them, I believe, that God would forgive them. In other words, Job must, by the grace of God, through his own humbling experience that he had with the Lord, he must now forgive and pray for his three friends. And it's not until he prayed that God restored all that he had lost twofold. This is really an important uh, point to make, I believe, that many of God's blessings are often tied to our obedience. Uh, this is kind of one of the assumed theology of the book, but it's, it certainly is true in many cases. Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 13, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You must do them, and then the blessing comes upon your obedience. So it wasn't until Job prayed for his friends, and I believe it involved asking for God to forgive them, that then the Lord opened the the heaven's gates and all these blessings came down upon Job again. What what Job had to do, I think, in in order to, to be restored is to pray and to forgive. Now, what does that mean for Job? Well, Job must deal with any resentment that he had toward his three friends for all the cruel and mean-spirited and and lies that they told about him. He must forgive them. Their judgmental, harsh words spoken against him, he must pray for them who had so ruthlessly and brutally condemned him, accusing him of great horrendous sins, he now must within his heart turn and forgive them and pray for them that God would forgive them. This is uh, speaks of, the, I think, probably the grace that is now flowing in Job's heart. We know the Scripture tells us that love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Love will remove the offense so healing can occur. I think of the illustration of a back in the old day when they used to hunt whales. And they would go out in their boats with these big harpoons, these big long harpoons. And the sailor would, would see a whale, he'd come to the surface, and he would throw that harpoon as hard as he could and impale the flesh into the flesh of that whale, and that whale is uh, therefore tied back to the boat because there's a rope on the harpoon that goes back to the men in the boat. And, in, and, and if that, that wound that is created will never heal, in fact, it'll lead to the whale's death if he's not able to pull it out. And obviously, a whale can't do that. But when people come up and speak harsh, mean words to you, it's like a harpoon that they impale in your flesh. And that wound will not heal and we will not recover unless in grace we can pull out the offense and let go of it and respond in forgiveness. That's what I think is going on in Job's heart. God and his, as he repented for his own pride before God, that repentant spirit within his heart has so softened him and humbled him towards his three friends that he began to love them again. And that love neutralized the acidic bitterness that can come into our heart and minds when we feel like people have offended us or done us wrong. But now he's forgiving them. He's pouring water on the fire of their evil words against him. Sometimes it's hard to forgive people. Uh, Some of you may be struggling with forgiving people here this morning. It's not always easy 
to forgive those who have injured us or harmed us or abused us or stolen from us or taken away from us or just bombarded us with lies and evil speech. It's not easy to forgive. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul gave us some help in this in Colossians 3 when he says, Bear with one another, forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So if you're struggling with forgiving someone because of what they've done to you, Paul says, stop. Think about what God has forgiven you of. Think about your own sin. See how wretched and vile and evil your sin was. And think about what you deserve for that sin. You deserve condemnation. You deserve to stand before the judgment bar of God and be condemned to hell forever. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And think about God forgiving you and the price He had to pay. He had to send His only begotten Son who came down and lived a sinless life and died in our place on the cross and bore our sins. And the Father smote Him and cursed him and condemned him for all of the penalty and pain that our sins deserve. So that whoever believes in Jesus Christ and calls upon the name of the Lord can be forgiven. Now think about how much the Lord has forgiven you and how great and deep and wicked your sins are. And then look at this person who sinned against you. And by sinning against us individually is so much of a lesser sin than sinning against God. It's, it, it would include sinning against God as well. But because Paul's point is because you have been forgiven, therefore you should forgive others. Just think about the sweetness, the preciousness of knowing that the guilt of all of our sins have been removed by the blood of Christ. And the point that he's making is that those forgiven should be forgiving. Those forgiven should be forgiving because we know what the Lord has saved us from. And when that humbles our proud spirit and that truth fills our heart with love for God, then it's much easier to forgive those who have trespassed against us. When God showed Job his sin of his own pride and arrogance toward God, and Job repented, it so humbled Job's heart that it removed all bitterness and anger towards his friends. So God told them, Job will have to pray for you, so that I will not bring down upon you everything that you deserve. And so Job prayed, and I think that must have involved him forgiving them and asking for God to forgive them. His friends who had become his enemies have now been made his friends again by the grace of God. You see, to harbor hatred and revenge against those who have harmed us reveals a defective response to our own forgiveness. Rather, we should forgive them and entrust them into the hands of a God who will deal with them correctly and appropriately according to His wisdom and His plan for their life. This also involves loving our enemies. This is a part of it because Job's friends really had kind of become his enemies throughout most of the book. But Jesus told us to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the kind of love and forgiving spirit we should have. Pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Love them. This is actually modeled by us by the Lord Jesus Himself when He's on the cross. And He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He prayed for His enemies. And He prays in such a way that is to be an example for us. So basically, 
Job was restored when he prayed because God was wanting Job to show forth the fruit of his repentance by actually forgiving them himself and praying, I believe, for God to forgive them. And when Job did that, and he forgave those who were so cruel to him, that then God opened up the blessings of heaven to fall into his life again. Here's the application. God may be withholding some of his blessings from your life, that have things that have been taken from you and not restoring them back to you because there's something in our hearts that needs to be dealt with. We need to rejoice in our own salvation and we need to turn to people who have offended us and forgive them and pray for them. And maybe in some of our lives today, God is holding back blessings because we haven't yet in humility forgiven others who have mistreated us. May God give us that grace that we may too receive the blessings that come with it. The twofold uh, blessing restoration that Job experiences, again, uh, is stated in verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. This is kind of the beginning, the general description of the depth and breadth of the blessings that now God is going to bring upon Job's life. And I think this involves that he was also healed. It wasn't just a financial prosperity kind of double blessing. I think he was healed uh, from all of the afflictions and the boils that he had as well. That seems to be implied, although it's not explicitly stated in the passage. And then we find in verse 11 some of the details of the double blessing. We began by reading that then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before uh, came to him. They ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him. So now all of his brothers and sisters and all of his friends, everyone who had knew him before, now come back to him. The sad thing is, where were they in the midst of all of his struggles? These are kind of like fair-weather family or fair-weather friends. I mean, they're there, they love you, they want to get close to you, rub shoulders with you when you're prosperous and healthy and powerful. But man, when you're in the dumps, they're nowhere to be found. Or maybe they're afraid of contracting the boils or something. I don't know. But now they're coming back. And it's a blessing that they do. I just uh, kind of wonder where were they through, through most of the book. But anyway, they come and they eat bread with Job in his house. Eating bread certainly signifies that the fellowship is being restored with them. Okay? So now the family has been reconciled and made whole again and then notice also the entire family all of his friends were Calvinists because they were comforting him and consoling him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him there's no mention of Satan God is sovereign they all understand that that everything that happened to Job the Lord did it to you Job they understood the sovereignty of God. So in a sense, they, they certainly have a high view of God. They're not blaming the devil. They're not blaming just bad luck. They're not blaming any other circumstance. No, they all understand theologically and correctly that God was sovereign, that the adversities really came from God. Even though Satan was the, was the agent in God's hand to bring it about, God was the one who called Satan. Remember, he said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He initiated it. He set the parameters of how much Satan could do to him. God was in total control of all of that. And people who have right theology understand that even the, the adversities in our life come from the Lord. If it didn't, 
then I live in a world where God is not in control and the world is out of control and Satan has more power and authority than, than God does or I'm just a victim of this, this universal bad luck and, I, and, and the whole world is therefore out of control. That's a miserable world to live in. I don't want to live in that kind of world. I can find comfort knowing that the God who loves me, the God who has sacrificed his son for me, is ultimately in control of even the adversities that come into my life. That must have a purpose. It's a part of his plan, and his plan is good for all of his people. I can find comfort in that. I can't find comfort in a God that is not sovereign. So they came and comforted him and consoled him for all the adversities that the Lord brought on him. They didn't understand why the Lord did it. They just knew that the Lord did. We just have to trust him. And then each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And this uh, probably was that that began the rebuilding of his wealth so that now he's going to own twice as much as he did in chapter 1. But uh, they're giving him money. We don't know how how valuable that piece of money was. Uh, But they also gave him a ring of gold. So suddenly he had wealth, and uh, it begins to, to grow from there. In verses 12, we see that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen. That would be 2,000 oxen. A yoke is two of them. He had 1,000 of them. And a 1,000 female donkeys. They were very valuable because they would have more donkeys and they would increase your, your herd. So all of this, if you go back in chapter 1, is exactly twice as much as what he had in chapter 1. There he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, etc. And so now God has restored Job's wealth and doubled it. On top of that, we read in verse 13, he had seven sons and three daughters. Now, he didn't double the number of his children, but he restored them in exactly the same amount. Seven sons, three daughters. They add up to ten. It's a symbolic number of completion or perfection. So again, it just speaks of the bounty of God's goodness being poured out on Job again. Now, Now, the author doesn't say anything about the seven sons, but he does kind of camp on these three daughters. The first one was given the name Jemima, which means dove. It's a name that reflects the the gracefulness of of a dove, possibly on account of her eyes. We aren't sure. But uh, we get it from good source that later, as her brothers and began to have children, and she became an aunt, that she was very creative and, and actually invented one of the greatest pancake syrups of all time. That's what I've heard. I mean, you know, take it for what it's worth. But she was named Jemima. The second one is Keziah. And this is the name of an aromatic plant, Cassia which was like a prized variety of cinnamon. So she's, she comes with this wonderful spice name that was associated with her. And then Karen Hapuk, the last one, that stands for a, a black rouge eye paint used to highlight the eyes. So it was a cosmetic feature, and she's named after that. So it's interesting how the Spirit of God draws the attention to the three daughters. And the significance of that is, of course, back in that day, sons usually received the, you know, the double inheritance and sons kind of had a priority. But to emphasize the magnitude of God's grace and mercy to Job, even his daughters were just out of this out of this world in so many ways he says uh, in verse 15 that in all the land no women were found so fair as job's daughters they were beautiful women beautiful daughters 
And not only that, their father gave them an, an inheritance among the brothers. Normally, the, the daughters didn't get an inheritance. Uh, later on, about a half a millennia later, when Moses writes the Torah in the book of Numbers, daughters would give an inheritance if there were no sons in the family. But Job had seven sons. But again, it speaks to the magnitude and the extent of God's blessings from heaven flowing down upon Job that even his daughters received an inheritance. And maybe that foreshadows in some way the coming of the new covenant that men and women are equal in Christ in terms of our inheritance in heaven. It's just kind of an interesting thing that's noted here. Uh, The idea seems to be that uh, Job's wealth was so vast that there was plenty for all of his children when he died. Just speaking of just the riches that the Lord blessed him with. And then we read at the end that after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons, his grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. So he lived 140 years longer From this point, from the time he was restored, he lived another 140 years. Now, some have thought that that 140 years was a double blessing. And if that's the case, then if Job, when all of his afflictions came upon him, would be 70 years old, then God in blessing him doubled that So 70 times 2 is 140. And then you add the whole thing together and he lived to be 210 years old. That would, if that's the right understanding, that would certainly put Job among the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham lived to be 175. Job would have lived to be 210. Pretty amazing. By, by closing the book with this reference to a double blessing, uh, of course, God is not intending to guarantee to all of us a double blessing in our life, uh, in this life, uh, once we survive any trials or struggles or illnesses that we might have. But what it's designed to do is just to give us a, a picture of the goodness of God that God gives good things to His people and to make us hopeful. I think a lot of this is just designed for those who are suffering, for those who are struggling, for those who are in the midst of trials and tribulations and sorrows to be hopeful because we worship a God who can restore twofold what you have lost. We leave that within His sovereign plan but it's the encouragement to trust in His wisdom. And if He chooses to withhold a double restoration from all the losses that we may endure in life, it's for a good reason, because your Father knows best. I'm old enough, when I I grew up, I, I used to watch that TV program, Father Knows Best. That's so politically incorrect today, you can't even hardly say it. But it was a great TV program. And at the end, Father always came through. He had the wisdom. He was able to to resolve all the problems or whatever it is. And we are blessed to have a Heavenly Father, an eternal, infinite, holy, wise, good God. And your Father knows what is best for you. And I think that's just part of the encouragement of the book. I want to kind of shift now just for a second, for a few seconds, and um, kind of look at Job again from a big picture just to see how he's a picture of Jesus Christ, a type of Christ for one final time. Remember, uh, I've shown you this slide before. Why did Job suffer? I think there's three reasons in the book for why Job suffered and had to go through everything he went through. The first one is to prove his faith to Satan. The second one was to improve his faith by revealing his sin of pride and bringing him to repentance. That was very sanctifying for Job. 
And then thirdly, he had to suffer because he was a type of Christ. So just real quickly, just to kind of walk through this again, some of the features of Job's life that in a faint, shadowy way prefigure the glory of Jesus Christ. We know at the beginning that Job was a blameless and a totally unique man. God said about uh, Job that uh, there's no one like him on earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. He's totally unique. There's no one like Job. And and what a, in a very small sense, what, what a what a reminder of the glory of Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, totally unique, holy, innocent, righteous, godly, and in a small little way, Job, I think, reflects the glory of Christ. He was also incredibly exalted. Number two. He was wealthy. He had all kinds of prosperity. He was looked upon as a chief and almost like a king within his community. He was uh, like a judge. He had honor and authority. And, and in all of that, it kind of speaks to Christ and his former glory before he came down as a man to live among sinners. The exalted status of Job kind of prefigures in some ways the infinitely exalted status of the Lord Jesus. But notice that Job was predestined by the plan of God to suffer. The totally innocent man must suffer. And this is one we've studied in the past. We've tried to emphasize. But this was the plan of God for His Son totally innocent, exalted, the one and only unique Son of God, yet predestined to suffer. And as Job had to go through that, he prefigured the Lord Jesus. Peter, several times in the book of Acts, says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That all those involved in crucifying Jesus, betraying Jesus, the trial of Herod and everybody else, those who actually nailed him to the cross, they did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. So the fact that Job suffered according to the plan of God also foreshadows the greater servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who came and suffered for us. It's also interesting, number three, that Job was bruised by Satan. Christ was bruised by Satan. Job was attacked by Satan. Jesus was. In his temptations, the uh, going into the mind and heart of Judas and bringing about the, the ultimate trial and betrayal and crucifixion. So in a very similar way, Christ and Job both were bruised by Satan. Genesis 3.15 gives that prophecy where God is speaking to Satan after the fall in the Garden of Eden. And he says to Satan that he, the seed of the woman, i.e. Christ, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So as Satan bruised Job on the heel, figuratively speaking, so he did with Christ. And there's that parallel as well. Number four, Job was falsely accused of sin, so was our Lord He was falsely accused of sin. Job's friends, you remember, accused him of falsely plowing iniquity and sowing trouble. That's what they said. They said that he was a fool and a hypocrite, that he needed to repent because he was a great sinner, that he was an evildoer. They said that he was a self-righteous, wicked sinner. They said that, Job, you're, you're like an unclean maggot and a worm, a reprobate, and terrors await you. Not exactly what you want on your resume, but that's what they were saying about Job. So they told lies about Job. They said evil things about Job, and they, they treated the Lord Jesus the same way. How did the Pharisees accuse Christ? Called Him a blasphemer, false teacher, lawbreaker, that he was insane, demented, 
born out of fornication, demon-possessed, and, and casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. That's what they said about the Lord Jesus. So Job, in a very interestingly way, in an interesting way, endures the very same type of verbal abuse from those around him that the Lord Jesus would as well. Job also persevered in faith, as did our Lord. One of the things that uh, Job says in the midst of all of his trials that he went through, losing all of his wealth, then losing all of his health, having everybody turn away from him and looking down and mocking him, and yet he never lost his faith in the Lord. In Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He never stopped looking to God, crying out to God, calling upon God, having hope in God. He never stopped doing that. And in a similar way, the Lord Jesus is, uh, had to endure all kinds of testings and temptations from the devil. He had to endure all kinds of suffering from not only the Pharisees, but just the attacks of, of the evil one. And yet the Lord Jesus, though in a very similar way like Job, even went through bewilderment on the cross. Remember throughout the book of Job, one of the things that he struggles with is why? Why are you doing this to me, Lord? I understand that the ungodly should be punished, but I'm not guilty of this great ungodliness to bring this kind of suffering. Why are you causing me to suffer this way? And he's just crying out to God throughout the book. But don't you hear the echo of Jesus on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can't you hear the echo in the Lord Jesus of what Job was experiencing throughout the book? And yet through all of Job's trials, he never lost faith in God. And Peter would say of the Lord Jesus also in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. See, even the Lord Jesus in his human nature, he never stopped entrusting himself into the hands of his Father. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. He kept entrusting himself into the hands of his father. So Job, in the midst of all of his mental breakdown and turmoil, never lost his faith in a, in a certain way prefiguring the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ who endured the cross, far greater suffering and torment that Job could ever suffer. Jesus bore it on the cross, and he never, ever lost his trust in the Lord. He cried out, why? But then the very last words that he uttered from his mouth on the cross was, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Job's faith is somewhat of a prefigurement of what we see in a far greater, more glorious level in the Lord Jesus. A sixth parallel between Job and Christ, and we looked at this the last time, is that Job became a priest and a mediator to his friends. They were under God's wrath. They would not be forgiven till Job prayed for them and received their sacrifices. Job was their priest and their mediator. And what this is prefiguring is the glory of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest and mediator, the only one who can really take away our sins, who always lives to make intercession for His people and He lives always to save forever those who draw near to Him. And I remember I emphasized this last week that Job was able to pray for his friends because Job was accepted by God. 
And because he was accepted, and because he prayed for his friends, and they brought their animal sacrifices to atone for their sin, Job prayed for them, and I think they were forgiven, and they were restored in fellowship with God. And all this points forward to the fact that we as sinners today, we need a priest and a mediator. You're not acceptable to God. We oftentimes think we are. The natural man thinks, well, you know, I've done more good things. I've done bad things. When we sin, well, I'm, a, I'm a good You're not a good person. You're a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you and me and everyone in the, that's ever left except the Lord Jesus. We need a mediator. You cannot get to heaven on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't do anything to please God. We find here even in the Old Testament that even our so-called righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. We need to be forgiven. We need a mediator to pray for us. We need a sacrifice who can actually take our place and bear our sins and die for us. And God has provided that in Jesus Christ. So that Job, as a priest, a mediator for his friends, foreshadows the greater coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect mediator. And there's only one that can reconcile sinners to a holy God. There's only one advocate we have with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. And you need Him if you want forgiveness. You need Him if you want to be restored to the Father. If you want to escape the consequences of the wrath of God that we deserve, you need a priest and a mediator. And Jesus Christ offers Himself to you. So that any sinner moved by the Spirit of God who repents and puts their faith in Christ can be forgiven and can be restored in fellowship with God. Christ can do that for you. And if you don't know Him, call upon Him and believe and trust in Him and He will save you as He promised. There's only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And it's the name Jesus Christ. And Job prefigured that ministry to his friends, which will have such an incredibly glorious fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus Christ for his friend. Well, the final parallel is that Job was gloriously restored, even greater to the, than the glory he had at the beginning of the book. And I think in some way this kind of prefigures the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus Christ that in, in some faint, shadowy way, the fact that, that God blessed Job and suddenly Job was exalted twice as much as he had before in some small way looks to the Lord Jesus Christ who in His resurrection from the, from the, the grave and His ascension to heaven and enthronement sitting at the right hand of God the Father uh, is now representing what Job in such a small way prefigured. Christ in His resurrection. Christ now restored in His heavenly glory with more of it now because He comes up as the suffering servant. He, he comes up now as a one who is obedient to the will of the Father and accomplished the redemption, the purpose for which He was sent. He goes up triumphant now, receiving not only the infinite glory of His divine nature, but the added glory of the, of the God-man now accomplishing our salvation. You can't add to infinity, but if you could, it would be doubled with the Lord Jesus just because of what He did for us. Paul speaks of that in Philippians 2 after Jesus died for us. He says, For this reason God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think in Job's glorious restoration, again, we see a faint picture of the restoration, the glory of Jesus Christ, 
after his ministry to us as a priest and a mediator. You know, though all of Job's family and friends came and adorned him with gifts, on a day in the future we shall all come before the risen Christ and adorn him with our praise. We will love him, we will praise him, and rejoice in all the salvation that he has won for us. Well, to wrap this up, we're happy for Job, aren't we? I mean, my goodness, just no one suffered on earth like Job, but uh, we're so thrilled for the magnitude of God's blessing upon this man. Whenever someone who has suffered tremendously recovers, we are happy for them. Whenever someone is sick and they get well again, we are happy for them. Whenever someone experiences great losses and those losses have been turned into gains, we rejoice with them and we see the gracious hand of God. Again, the point of this ending is not to guarantee or to give a specific promise to anyone that God's trials in your life will one day end and you'll be restored double for whatever you lost. That is not the promise here. The encouragement from the book, however, is to give us hope. Hope that we worship a good God. A hope that God can restore the losses and the crosses that we've borne. That God can reverse the suffering and He can restore us and He can bless us in, in many different ways because this is the God that we worship. He is, a, he is a good God. And I think in many ways it's designed to encourage those who are suffering even today. One of the verses I love in the Psalter comes from Psalm 30 verse 5 that says, For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And what that's designed to encourage us with is, yeah, there is suffering in this life. There is weeping. There are tragedies that occur upon us, but they're not eternal. They are temporary. And sometimes they last for only a daytime, only a nighttime. And then when the morning dawns, there'll be a shout of joy that eventually the favor of God will come back upon our life. It's just designed to encourage us with the the graciousness, the mercy, the love, the kindness of the God that we worship. Again, our hope ultimately must transcend this life, though, Because sometimes in God's wisdom and providence, our sufferings and our trials last far longer than we want. Sometimes they may go to us to the grave. We don't know what God's purpose and will is. But ultimately, the story of Job gives us the ultimate hope that God will restore and bless his children. And it may not be till heaven, but that promise is for every one of his children that God will bless you. Our God understand every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above. It comes from our God. And Jesus told his disciples that if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? It's not a guarantee, but it engenders hope and confidence in God's sovereign will and purpose in our life. Again, it's not a guarantee that all of our crosses and losses will be reversed in this life so that we are blessed double for all of our suffering. But it does give us hope that ultimately we will transcend and pass beyond our struggles, our trials, our sicknesses. Maybe it carry them through this life, but eventually we will transcend and our hope will bring us into the glory of heaven. So that Job's twofold restoration ultimately is a bit of a glimpse, a glimmer of the ultimate hope that awaits for every believer in times of severe testing. Paul said of it this way, 
that what awaits us are things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not even entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So when God sends afflictions into your life and you're tempted to become angry or despair or defy God and complain, let us remember the good outcome of God's dealings with Job and have hope. Hope that God could do the same thing in your life in this life. But ultimately have hope that God will restore us at least in eternity, if not in this life, and he will pour out his blessings far more than twofold. An infinite mother load of blessings await every child of God so that ultimately our hope is in that great glorious future. Paul said it this way, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is our hope. The story of Job is that, yeah, he can do it in this life too. But we trust God in that regard. But everybody should have hope that the story which starts out good goes bad as a good and happy ending. Because Jesus Christ has accomplished through His death all that's needed to restore us in glory, infinite glory with God forever in heaven. That is our hope. And we can see a little faint picture of it in the life of Job. Well, may God encourage us to have that same kind of hope in the Lord. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank you for this incredible book, Lord. Uh, it has challenged us in so many ways. But we thank you especially for the, for the closing, the conclusion of the book to see how good and gracious your hand was in dealing with your servant Job. And again, Lord, it, it rekindles within us confidence that we worship a good God. But Lord, we also know that our Father knows best. And we entrust our trials, we entrust our suffering into the hands of not only a God who is good, but infinitely wise and oftentimes ordains crosses before we wear the crown that we too might be conformed to the image of our savior but we thank you for that hope the hope in christ the hope of glory the hope of the resurrection the hope of eternity in heaven with you lord jesus forever and ever because that's what you accomplished for us when you died on the cross and rose again on the third day so dear lord Fill our hearts with hope, hope in your goodness, hope in your wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.